Well, it's, uh, <coughs> it's lovely uh, to be back here, um, and I want to thank you all as well for all your prayers, gifts, and food uh, around the birth of our dear son, Seth. We're so grateful to you all as a church family. And my sermon uh, today, part one this morning, part two sermons, but set in two cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now, if you know your literature, you'll know that's a tale of two cities, Charles Dickens. This morning, we're going to be in Damascus, where this angry religious guy who thinks he knows who he is comes face to face with the living God. And tonight, we're going to be in Athens as we consider how that changed man, how he goes into a city which doesn't like his God and the impact that he has on that city. So students, come tonight again because you're new in the city. You're Christians, I hope. How do, how do you impact the city? And how does the city impact you? So a tale of two cities. Acts chapter 9, verse 5. Shall I just read that again? And again, it doesn't matter if you haven't got a Bible. Paul, or Saul at this point, said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this event in the Acts of the Apostles is so important for Luke, the author, that he talks about it three times. Now, uh, it's important because it's an important conversion of, for obvious reasons in the Western church. But also, people were doubting the apostleship of Paul. So Luke is saying it three times. Who are you, Lord? was the question. Who are you? Is that the question on your lips this morning? Perhaps you've never been to church before and you're thinking, who is this Jesus? Who are you, Lord? It's a timeless question, but an important one, okay? And the chapter uh, is continue Luke's narrative from the previous chapter. If you've got your Bibles, just turn over one page to chapter 8. And the story is that at the time, there was a great persecution in the land. Look at the beginning of chapter 8 there. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This was a rough time if you were a Jesus follower, someone of the way. You know... It was a dangerous time, a little bit like today. We were the fringe, the peripheral. And yet it was the best of times because the church of Jesus Christ was growing rapidly. Now, this zealot Saul, let's, let's zoom in on this character, this religious guy. He's got it all. Now, he doesn't like the Christians because they're threatening his identity, they're threatening his Jewishness, everything that made him feel good about himself. And look what he's doing at the beginning of chapter 9. 
having secured credentials from the high priest to kill Christians. You know, the high priest was probably Caiaphas. That's striking, isn't it? For those of you who know your Bibles. You know, this group, this early church, if you look at verse 2, he's hunting not Christians, but people of the way. People of the way. That's a lovely name for the early Christians. Do you remember what Jesus Christ said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. So he's searching for these way followers, this people of the way. So come with me now. Let's follow him as he's going with his entourage to Syria. I wouldn't recommend it today, by the way. Uh, yeah, you might, it's a bit dangerous, this area. Come to that Syrian stretch. It's about noon. It's about midday. It's hot. It's dusty. He's, they've got their swords shining in the sunlight. They're ready to do harm in the name of God. It's a 150-mile-long journey. And this infamous solar tarsis, Christian killer, Christ hater, encounters the light of the unknown God. Firstly, this morning, I want to look briefly at this individual because you'll start seeing maybe he's a lot like you. And secondly, I want to look at this interruption and what it meant uh, for Saul of Tarsus. And finally, we realise that this interruption isn't just uh, uh, a soul-crushing moment. It's actually an introduction as well. An introduction. So first of all, the individual. Who do you think you are? Now, as well as a major television series, we're obsessed with identity today, aren't we? Ego, I, pedigree, heritage, ancestry. We're obsessed with it. Who am I? Who do I think I am? Uh, yeah, no, my wife, sorry for mentioning you, brought me a DNA test last Christmas from Ancestry.com. I may have said this illustration before, but I'm saying it again. Uh, it showed that you do a swab like this, and it showed that I was 100% Welsh. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm joking. <laughs> I was 50% Welsh, 48% English or Northern European, and 2% Orkney. Who do you think you are this morning? Now, the man we're looking at in this chapter knew exactly who he was, or he thought he did anyway. Do you remember Philippians 3? And that's Saul's DNA test result. If you let me read it to you, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he's not Welsh, but he's, oh, I more so, he's proud, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now those words might be unfamiliar to you this morning, but I can tell you one thing that's not unfamiliar to you. You're like Saul, you think you're blameless. And the task of the preacher 
is to make, like John Owen said, those who think they are blameless to see actually that you're blameworthy this morning. You're blameworthy. I spoke to someone recently after when preaching and they said, I don't want to be saved. I don't want your Jesus Christ. I don't need him. I'm perfect. I thought, well, <laughs> well done. <laughs> That's quite an achievement. Quite an achievement. But if I put my x-ray glasses on this morning and peer into your hearts, each and every one of you, me in particular, you can see that our thoughts, our deeds, sometimes frighten us. You say, oh, I'm not like him. But if you're honest with yourselves, the Bible teaches us that we are naturally sinners, uh, an old term, if you like, but you know exactly what it means. It's that rebellion against God, shaking your fist at him. You know what that means. You may not know what sin is. And you may think I'm an extremist this morning talking like this. I've had that before, but I can tell you now, it's your sin that's extreme. It's your sin that's extreme. You don't need me to tell you that. Who do you think you are this morning? I want you to see yourselves first. Just like Saul needed stopping in his tracks because he needed to see who he really was. Who do you think you are? But secondly, uh, let's follow him now. We're on the Syrian road, aren't we? And this proud man who's very happy with himself <laughs> is interrupted. Is interrupted I'm sure many of you have encountered the phrase Damascus Road conversion at some point in your lives. Now, the whole scene has been attacked over and again. People saying, oh, he had a nervous breakdown. Oh, he had a bit of sunstroke. No, true. You know, the equivalent of what happening here is Putin becoming... <laughs> an apostle overnight that's not sunstroke friends it's like hitler becoming an angel that's not sunstroke my friends that's not even a calling alone there's a conversion here there's a change isn't there but let you know let's look let's look closely at the the text itself uh, verse three what what does it tell us a light flashes around him and later in the chapter, it describes that light being brighter than the midday sun. Can you imagine that? But not just the light. There's a voice as well in verse 4, isn't there? A voice which <laughs> absolutely smacks him to the ground. It pounds him. Like when a prop forward. I was a prop forward once, believe it or not. When a prop forward smashes you on the ground. That voice in Aramaic. It, it addresses him, isn't this lovely, in his mother tongue. In his mother tongue. What becomes evident later as we're going through the chapter is that this light and this voice is none other than the light and voice of Jesus Christ. And perhaps some of you are waiting for such an extraordinary experience. You say, oh, I want to be a Christian, but I, I, I haven't had that voice yet or the light. Now, in many ways, this chapter is exceptional, okay? Light and voice in verse 3, 
a commissioning in verse 6. And practically, as I said earlier, going to Damascus today would be a bit tricky, okay? We can't reenact this. No, no. But the good news for you this morning, that in another sense, all born-again Christians have had an experience like Saul's. The blameless one saw himself as blameworthy. As John Stott writes, for we too can and must experience a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, surrender to him in penitence and faith, and receive his summons to service. You need to be interrupted this morning, however respectable you are. But what exactly is being interrupted? Let's look again. Let's delve a bit nearer to the text. For the, from the first verses, the language Luke is using to describe Saul is a bit odd, isn't it? Breathing out, uh, breathing out threatenings and murders. That's a strange thing to describe, isn't it? Bre- now, the original is breathing in threats. It's, I'm not going to do it in the pulpit. It, well, it's like a bull, isn't it? Like a bull before he's going to uh, attack the bullfighter. He's snorting. He's angry. He's relentless. He's uncontrollable. He's like an animal, brothers and sisters. He's like an animal. And that's the language that Luke is using here. And I can say this with confidence because in Acts 8 verse 3, we're told how he made havoc of the church. A word similarly used in Psalm 80 where we're told that wild boars uprooted that special vine brought forth from Egypt, that, that picture for the church. A destroying animal. A destroying animal. This is a man who was so religious that he became a monster. He had the best teaching. He had the best teacher. He had such a good identity in many ways. And yet, when he encountered Stephen, someone who had something that he didn't, in all his religiosity, he was so jealous of that Stephen that he even held the courts of the guys. And they said, pound him harder. What an animal. What an animal. Now you say to me, I'm not like that. Oh, I'm, thank goodness I'm not like that. My friends, your unbelief this morning is as hard and dark as the stone that struck Stephen's forehead. Your stubbornness to the Lord Jesus Christ is as sharp as those nails that were driven into the hands of our Lord. And your hardness makes you closer to Saul than you think. I'm not judging you, because I was exactly the same. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. In Wales, uh, one of our stories is about a wild boar, actually, the Turch Truith. I'll give you a test later to see if you can say that. A Turch Truith. And uh, the story goes that this evil king was transformed into a wild boar because of his sin. So he was literally like Saul, you know. And eventually this boar ravages the country of Wales. And that's why you've got places like Llanreader and Mochnant, Mochdre, uh, Moch is Welsh for pig. It's the places that he ravaged on the way. 
according to mythology. Eventually, it was so bad that the king himself, King Arthur, had to step in and kill the pig on the shores of the River Severn. It's a striking image, isn't it? The king himself coming to deal with this animal. Saul needed dealing with. He was disrupting the Great Commission. He was getting in the king's way. And don't, you know, only a king could deal with him. He couldn't deal with himself. Only the king could interrupt his savagery. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know, in verse 2, there's almost a Nazi efficiency, isn't there, as he apprehends those letters. But then one greater than Arthur interrupts this monster. You need interrupting this morning. You know, I don't know you, but I do know that you need that. Whether you willingly sin or whether you're seeped in the self-righteousness of coming to church week by week, but inside you're as hard as ever, you need interrupting. Because if you're not interrupted, you will die. Like everyone else, we know that. That's not shocking, is it? But what's worse, you'll face a second uh, death where you will be separated from God forever. Now, God does not desire this. God does not desire that you die in loneliness and that you face an eternity without Him. You know in your heart that He's real and you can guess that He's real because that conscience that's in you bothers you. I don't know if you're an agnostic here this morning. You know that's just an excuse to get God off your back. You don't want to be tamed because you are the most important person. But you will die if you do it your way. But I've got excellent news for you this morning. Even your stubborn will can be interrupted. Even your atheism can be interrupted. Even your darkness can be interrupted because Jesus Christ is called the light of the world. And look how that light interrupts this darkness. This is the same light that brought the very world into existence. The same light that hovered over the barren, impossible womb of the Virgin Mary. Yes, I believe in the virgin birth. And it's that same power that interrupts darkness in your hearts. It's God. It's God. He reveals the hopelessness in our own efforts and turns us in repentance whereby our eyes are fixed on this interrupter. So thirdly then, there's an introduction, isn't there? This is where we're getting to. There's an introduction. He doesn't just interrupt, does he? He introduces himself in light that outshines the sun and the glory that arrests Saul in his tracks. And Saul would have known from his Old Testament that when people are given vision of this higher light, that, oh dear, this, this is God. But still, he's not sure. And he asks, doesn't he, who are you, Lord? Who are you? It's really personal, isn't it, the way that the Lord speaks to him. Notice there in verse 4, Saul, Saul, the double knocks of Scripture. You see them throughout the Bible. 
I'll test you later. Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. That is how God called his ancient prophets, personal. But Christ in pity says, Martha, Martha. Do you remember that? The double knocks of Scripture. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in sadness. And you know the most frightening one of all in Scripture is that one at the end. Lord, Lord, of those who call on Christ, but he doesn't know you. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You see how important this introduction is this morning. You don't want to hear those words, depart from me. What else does he say? Why do you persecute me? Because things must have been, uh, the coins must have been falling in his head by now. The penny must have dropped. Oh boy, these Christians were right all along. Are you going to be like that at the end? Oh, I wish I'd listened to that very Welsh young man on. <laughs> it's life and death, my friends. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here. My friends, the world will teach you that there are many ways to God. Krishna and Muhammad and Allah are just other names for the Lord Jesus Christ. But yeah, I'm going to use an illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia. The young girl comes before the great lion by a stream and she's thirsty. She wants to know the way and she's thirsty. And she says, oh, I won't drink, thank you very much. Understandably, there's a lion there. And it can be a bit like that with church and the Lord Jesus. He's, he's too other, too scary. And yet she says, oh no, I'll go and find another stream. And then Aslan says to her, remember, my girl, there is no other stream. There is no other stream this morning. There is no other way. The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. You must be saved. He saw the Lord there in verse 26, uh, in, in Acts 26, verse 16, because he says to him, I appear to you. I appear to you. This interruption and introduction may not be as sudden as verse 3 first suggests. The language is the same as the shepherds, suddenly a light. But I think God had been chasing Saul for a while, maybe like some of you here this morning. Christians in your family talking to you, that feeling in the night that there's something more than this. Has God been chasing you? And we're back to the animal world then. This introduction comes with a proverb. Look there at the end of verse 5. I am Jesus, he says. I am Jesus, the one you hated the one you hated most of everyone. And then he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. We're back in the animal world and the farmer would have, I don't know if you have any farmers here today, you've got your goad, which you prod the cow <laughs> in order to calm them down, bring them into line. Do you need a goad this morning? The goad would have been sharp. And there were many prods and pokes in Saul's life. You know, I often speculate what some of those prods may have been. You know, he was about the same age as the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Did he see that carpenter who knew all things and had the grace and wisdom of Almighty God? Possible. I'm not, I'm not saying yes or no. But then he saw Stephen, didn't he? He saw Stephen, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew of the Jews, as it were. He was learned like him, and yet there was grace and love and purity and cleanliness in him. And that bothered Saul. It bothered him. And some of you look at Christians sometimes and say, oh, I don't like them. I don't know why. They're just too good or too clean. And we're not perfect, I can tell you that. But sometimes a Christian will reflect something of his master in his face, and people don't like that. Did that bother Saul, I wonder? And you must ask, that conscience must have arisen in him when they were pounding poor Stephen to death. Surely, surely he saw that this wasn't right. He'd never experienced the real thing before. The real interruption, the real introduction. He didn't know God at all. He knew about him, but he didn't know God. My friends, notice uh, all these goads seem to have been used by our Lord until finally Saul is corralled. I hope that you're being corralled this morning, that you see that none but Christ can satisfy when this Lord of glory identified himself as Jesus, Saul's hatred turns to faith, doesn't it? For he had been confronted with the basic concepts needed for salvation. It's really simple, brothers and sisters. Those who believe in their heart that the Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and confess with their mouth shall be saved. Now that's not easy believism. It's not like, oh, I'll try a new soda next week. I'll try Jesus. You can see how crushing it was for Saul. And notice the change in him. I won't go into this, but the later verses say that he was trembling. He was astonished. And this time they, they take him by the hand into the city. And he asked the questions, what would you have me do? Not what would Moses have me do, or my mum, or my dad, or, or, all, or my grandparents. What would you have me do? And that's the change. Christ is now his master, but not in that slave-like way, for his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. If you're not a Christian here this morning, may I address those of you who don't know Jesus as your saviour, come, see him hanging there for you, for you, paying the price for all those terrible things you've done, suffering for your sin. And if you don't fully understand, keep asking, like Saul of old, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Because I can tell you now, like I said earlier, it would be awful if you reach the end and you don't know him. You don't know him. I'll finish with this. My ancestor was a guy called Owen Huxley. He was a minister, uh, like me, on Anglesey in Wales, in Wales, like me. I've got the same blood as him, uh, half anyway. 
<laughs> he played the cello, believe it or not. I play the cello. Sorry, I'm not cool. I don't play the guitar like others. Uh, <laughs> I know he loved Jesus like me. I know he even looked like some members of our family. But I can't really know him, can I? Well, not yet, anyway. I don't know him. I tell you why, because he died in 1800. Now, you can know a lot about Jesus Christ this morning. You may think you've read it all, you know it all. But unless you're interrupted by him, unless you're introduced to him, and unless you um, imitate him and come to him as your only saviour, you will never know him. So I pray that something of my words will have struck a chord. Oh, that we might all know Jesus, that he is all in all. He is more than life to me. Shall we just pray quickly? Lord, forgive us that we so often try and avoid you, that we go the other way. But we praise God that you are like a hound, the hound of heaven who pursues us, and it's your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is altogether lovely. He loved me. He loved everyone here who would come to him and, oh, and say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Oh, Lord, bless our church. May we be Christ knowers here, even this morning. And may we go from this place having met with the living God who revealed himself through his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name's sake, amen. We'll uh, conclude our time of worship by singing, <laughs> Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? This is a question. Don't just sing it like the words. Ask yourselves, have you heard the voice of Jesus? I pray that each and every one of you will go from this place saying, yes. Let's sing together. Hymn number 473, if you're listening at home. Mm -hmm.